are in Hebrews, and we will be picking up in chapter 5 in a few minutes in verse 11. Now before we do that, we're going to just real quick walk through the very high-level argument that Hebrews has been making. So some of this we've said enough times so far. You should be able to answer some of these questions in your sleep, um, I would hope. But Hebrews was written to what people? Jewish Christians Christians experiencing what problem? Persecution Persecution from non-Christian Jews. So we have, the whole conversation is in the Jewish community. We have non-Christian Jews persecuting Christian Jews in hopes that they could get these Christian Jews to do what? Go back to the law. To to leave Christ, to go back to the law, to, we could say to recant, we could say, what's our A word to describe this? Apostasy. That's their goal. So in, sorry, I can't chew ice and talk. I don't know what I'm thinking. It just happened. It went in, you know, and had to deal with it. Couldn't swallow it. All right, so to counter that temptation, so they're, they're being tempted. Life would be a lot easier if they'd just recant Jesus, apostatize, go back to Judaism. The author of Hebrews is going to make an argument that they should not do that. So to make that argument... This is what he has said so far. So this is very high level. We're not getting into all the details. These are the first four blanks on your outline. So let's just real quick walk through those four things. So the first one is really in the first paragraph. Jesus is God. That's the very first direct teaching. The exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of the glory of God. This is Jesus. But also Jesus is man. Jesus is man. Not only is he God, he is man. So because of that, there's things Jesus can become. He can learn. Now we don't mean that from the God side, because how long has Jesus been God? He's always. Can that God learn new things? Can he get smarter? Can he get better? No, He, he is what he is. But when we talk about Jesus the man, there was a time when the man part, and i got to be careful I'll say this, when that was not, not, not Jesus, Jesus has always been, but he wasn't always incarnate. But he's incarnate now, and that flesh started as a baby. It grew into a man. It learned, grew in wisdom and stature, we're told, in Luke's gospel. And he grows up. He be- becomes greater. This is the first argument Hebrews makes after that. He has become greater than angels. Very good. Greater than the angels. And so using Old Testament lingo there, it says that man in the Psalms is a little lower than the Elohim. And in that case, we're talking about the sons of God, which is Old Testament lingo for the angels. So he was a little lower than the angels. So in becoming human, in a certain sense, Jesus became lower than the angels. But now through his work of the gospel, his death, burial, resurrection, exaltation to the right hand of the Father, he is now greater than the angels. So in their system of thought, how did Moses get the law? Where did it come from? Well, it came from God, but it was mediated 
through an angel. So you see that expression, angel of the Lord. Just in Jewish thought, they would say the angels gave the Old Testament. And so that's why he makes that first argument. So he transitions then to the law that they gave to Moses. So Jesus is a better minister than Moses because his people make it to the promised land. So we've gone through that analogy several times. Moses got them out of Egypt into the wilderness, but Moses did not get any of them to the promised land. Technically two of them went, but Moses didn't take them. He didn't even get to go himself. And then the argument we've been in, because we've really been cycling that argument for several weeks now, and where it ended is Jesus is a better high priest, and that high priesthood was in the Mosaic Law. He's a better high priest for two reasons. Because he was appointed by God, and then that will last forever. Because how long did the high priest serve? Until he died. died. And Jesus, he's got the same stipulation. He will only be the high priest as long as he's alive. And what's the catch? He won't die. He's permanent. So he will always be high priest. And because he was made perfect through suffering. Not through sin. So the other high priest could relate to us in that they were sinners like us. But Jesus was made perfect through suffering. And so that's going to play a lot in the role as we go. So that's what's happened so far. And that's where we ended in chapter 5, verse 11. In fact, you'll, I'm sorry, verse 10. You'll see that it ended with that final statement. He, he can give us eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, grammatically, structurally, in the book of Hebrews, from that sentence until the end of chapter 6, we need to put in parenthetical brackets. You understand what I'm saying? He's making one train of thought, and that train of thought is being interrupted for a chapter and a half. And then you'll see, so if you just skip the section we're doing tonight. So read verse 10 there. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. What I'm saying is if you removed the section we're talking about right now, you would have better flow than we actually have. You follow what I'm saying? This is a parenthetical thought. Now, that doesn't mean it's an unrelated thought that got thrown in here. It's a thought he has to deal with. Have you ever been telling a story and you reach a point where actually you can't finish telling a story because you got to explain this other thing first and then you can come back and finish telling the story. Otherwise, it just won't quite have the same impact if you don't know this other piece. That's what he's doing here. So he just climaxed to Melchizedek. Jesus is the New Testament Melchizedek. Oh, but we can't go there yet because y'all have got a problem. He can't talk. I'm not saying y'all, maybe y'all, but for him, he's saying these, this group of people he's talking to, if they were really following the argument so far, he wouldn't have even needed to write the letter. Now, why does he need to write the letter? Well, he's, he's actually concerned that they may fall off. They may apostatize. Some of these people may submit to the persecution and turn back to the Old Testament. Now, if they really knew Jesus was the high priest that he says he is, would they be tempted to fall away? No. And if they weren't, 
Well, he could move on. But they aren't. At least he's worried they could be. Now, he's hopeful they won't be, but he knows they could be. It's, it's interesting how much this passage parallels what we've been doing in Corinthians. Because uh, what Paul's thing Sunday was, now, I don't want you to receive the grace of God in vain. It's really the same sort of scenario happening here in Hebrews. He knows they probably haven't, but maybe they have. At least some of them, maybe that's where they're at. So because of that, parentheses, we got to deal with what happens if you say you believe in this high priest, but you've received that in vain. And you're one of the ones who's about to turn back and follow Moses instead. Let's talk about that scenario. That's where we are. So, now chapter 5, verse 11. And 11 through all of chapter 6 is this parenthesis. Y'all follow what I mean by the parenthesis, right? Okay, here we go. About this, that is Melchizedek, and Jesus being the priest after the order of Melchizedek, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. He's not kidding. He spends two chapters explaining it, and there's still a lot of theological debate about it, even now. So he's going to do it, and it's still going to be complicated, but he can't do it yet. Right? We have a lot to say about this. It's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. All right, so who's he talking to? Christian Jews. These Christian Jews who are being tempted to fall back. All right, he, he's getting a little frustrated that this has to even be said. Or if you think about it, if they believed in the Jesus he's talked about so far, should he have to say this? He shouldn't have to, but he does have to. So maybe getting a little grouchy here with them, you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. So where's he saying they're, they're messed up at? The complicated theology, the outskirts, no, basics. He's going to list what those basics are in a moment, and they're super basic. And unfortunately, even in churches today, some of these super basic things are poorly understood. And, and we can apply the same passage to a lot of Christians, a lot of churches. We ought to be teachers by now, but instead we need to be taught the basics. You need milk, not solid food. So... I have to be careful how we explain this illustration. Jesus wants us to have, have childlike faith, right? But the Bible does not want us to have childlike thinking. Those are different concepts. So he's going to chastise the people here for being children in that sense. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So is he using child positively or negatively in this context? Negative. This is negative. You don't want to be a child in this context. That you're unskilled. You can't do righteousness. You can't even speak about righteousness correctly if you're a child. Solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to, do, to distinguish good from evil. All right, so let's just overview three main points just from that paragraph before we dive into the exciting part in chapter 6. Number one, all Christians should grow in their understanding of theology. Do you see how he's assuming that? So you ought to be teachers now, but instead we're having to go back and explain the basics to you. It's not a positive statement. 
He's frustrated with them for this. He's calling them immature. You're a childish Christian, not in the positive way. In the negative way, if you don't know your theology. Now, I'm not saying you have to go learn all your isms. That can be complicated. I get that. But you need to understand the kind of stuff going on in Hebrews. And we'll admit at times, Hebrews is complicated. It is. But we're expected to attempt to learn this stuff. And to be a mature Christian is to grow in our understanding of these things. Mature, sorry, mature Christian thinking is required for righteous living. You see how he's connecting those dots? It says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Righteousness, that's the, the outward behavior that we practice as Christians. If you don't have good theology, you won't practice well. This is just the reality of nature. In fact, if you don't have good theology, your practice will end up getting off course. We can see this in church history over and over and over and over again. And then last, maturity comes from practice. I love how that's described in verse 14. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You can see it's assumed there. You don't just get saved and go, I got it, I'm mature now. That's how it works. What do we usually call this process? Sanctification. And when we say sanctification, we almost always say it with a little bit, bit of negative connotation. We know it's a good thing, but why do we have a negative connotation connected to sanctification? Because it hurts. <laughs> it's painful. Who likes to practice anything? Now, maybe some of you do. But my struggle is learning a musical instrument. I played trombone and high school band and all that. And I was okay. But the problem was, and the same problem every other student had, is, do you know how often we practiced? At band practice, yeah. right? That was practice time. Nothing else, nothing outside of that. And I remember the band director would get so mad when he would see us leaving school, and he would know we weren't <laughs> going to practice. He could look at us and tell on our way out of the building. And what was it? I didn't take my instrument home. He knew. There's no way you're practicing. You don't have two trombones. I know this. You know? <laughs> so we don't like practice. And that's why we have a negative connotation with sanctification. And sometimes this stuff is hard. It's tricky. You start studying the Bible. You start getting the theology. It's like, oh, this is frustrating and confusing. It is. Oftentimes it is. But we're expected to work at it, to practice, to get better at it. And as we get better at it, we do get more mature. However, that's not the case for some of the people he's writing to. So let's go to verse, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore... Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. So here's what he's about to say. We want to go forward. We want to get past the basics, the stuff you should know. Let's get to the level of stuff teachers should know. Teachers should get to this other stuff instead of the stuff he's about to list. Now, that's not saying the teachers don't know or care about the stuff he's about to list because these are the first level things. We should talk about these things a lot and all the time. He's just saying we need to get to a point where we, we need to call that assumed, basic, normal. We get this, and we need to go deeper. But here's that list. Number one, repentance. Um, whoop, let's see. Now laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. <laughs> That's an elementary doctrine. You can understand why, right? 
What's the first thing you ought to do coming into the faith? Repent of your dead works and put faith in your God. That's the basics of conversion. That ought to be literally step one foundation for you. <clears throat> Repent from sin, from dead works, toward the living God. Now, dead works for them is a little bit more precise than it is for us. For us, we mean the general sinful lifestyle we had before Christ. They mean a specific lifestyle they had before Christ. What's their context? What's their dead works? Practice of the law. Practice of the law. Repent from Phariseeism to go from Paul, Saul to Paul to go from faith in that righteous-based system to faith in Christ is my righteousness system. So that's basics. Next, instructions about washings. Now that's, there's debate here. That's probably a reference to baptism. The, the Greek word there is the cleansing, and that's the idea of, you know, you dunk something in water to cleanse it. That's probably a very Jewish way of talking about baptism. But it could be, you know, other things. I lean towards the baptism direction, so that's what I'm going to say it is. Right. That what says, that's what it says in mine. Yours yeah. says baptism? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, literally it's cleansing. Yeah. And, and that's King James. So. Hey, there you go. If the King James says it. Well, that's what I'm saying. No, what? I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stop. Well, did, did the Jewish do, like, cleansing stop. rituals before they went to temple I was just or saying like that's that? what it said. So yeah. that's, is that really yeah, a baptism? Yeah, I don't know. So. Not the way we think of it. <laughs> well, our baptism is very sacramental. We have a very specific thing. And I think they're working towards that lingo here. And so I would say this is a precursor. I think later in church history, you would they say baptism. You wouldn't say it this way. You would expressly say baptism. All right, but to keep going, so the laying on of hands, now that's ordination. So that's basics. How many churches should have ever ordained someone? Every once. church. <laughs> you know, you've got to have leaders that have been ordained. This is basic church polity. So laying on of hands. Then the resurrection of the dead. Well, you know, that's one of my soapboxes, right? Abby? That's where, do you remember, or I don't know if you were in the service when we ordained our elders recently. The men came and put their hands on them and prayed. That's what that's a reference to. We call it ordination. right? And then the resurrection of the dead. And now, that is not, directly anyway, talking about Jesus raising from the dead. It includes that. But what's it primarily talking about? The future resurrection of the body. This is in all the ancient creeds. We believe in the resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. That's what that statement's about. That's not advanced theology. Resurrection of the dead is literally stated in Scripture. That's basics. You should know that one. You should believe in that one. And then one more, eternal judgment. Well, that's basic too. We've talked about that several times recently. So, verse 3, we're, we will do this. And now will do this means we're going to go past those basics and talk about something else. We're going to do this if God permits. But what we're getting towards is a however. A few more verses. And then when we get to chapter 7, we're going past the basics and we're getting into the more mature teachings. That is, Jesus being the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You know, follow the flow of thought so far. 
Okay, so those are the basics. We need to get through those. Let's see, where have we... <coughs> okay, yeah, we, okay, well, we're good. We hadn't missed any blanks yet. So, let's dive into the meaty part. Verse 4. For it is impossible. Let's talk about that word for just a second. Impossible. Is there two M's in there? No. That feels wrong. No. Yeah, I was going to say, that doesn't look right. If there is, when you spell it. When I yeah. spell it, there's two. That's fine. I was like, that doesn't even work about. in the root. Okay. Impossible. Yes, you're good now. Okay, there we go. <laughs> All right, let's just talk about the English version of this word. It's based on, uh, I think that's a Latin root. But uh, what's going on? We really have two things going on here. We have a base word with a prefix on it, right? What's the prefix here? I am. All right, so if we just look at the word possible, what would that mean? It's possible. It can be done. It can happen. And M is a prefix that means what? It cannot happen. Okay. Um, not to be confused with inflammable. That's, uh, that's not a prefix in that scenario. Okay. Impossible. So cannot happen. So the Bible's about to tell us that something is not possible. We're actually going to be told about two things that aren't possible in this text. This is the first thing. This thing is not possible. Not unlikely. Not possible. Those aren't the same. Everybody with me on that. No, no unclarity there. For it is impossible... Now we're going to have a list of things. In the case of those, so this is people, people who, we have a list of things. So what are these things? It's impossible for this group of people to do something. So step one, people who have been enlightened. Just when you hear that expression, enlightened, what, what do you think of? See. see, see. So literally, it's like enlightened, light bulb. I mean, we even think idea. We, we image that as a light bulb going off. So what's the particular enlightenment that happens in this scenario, you think? I'd say they, they have at least seen clearly the glory of the gospel. Now, from reading 2 Corinthians recently, what has Satan done to the minds of the unbelievers? They're blinded to the light of the God. Did they see this light? No. But some people, if you remember, this is in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God said, let light shine into darkness. And some people have been enlightened and see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Are you familiar with that passage? So these people... It's impossible for people who have been enlightened to do something. Well, let's keep going. What else have these people done? It says they have tasted the heavenly gift. Tasted heaven. Let's go ahead and list them all and then look at what put them all together. They've tasted the heavenly gift, shared in Holy Spirit. And then there's one more, right? 
Tasted the goodness of the word of God. I'm going to say enjoyed word. And then they've tasted of the powers of what? Of the world to come. I'm going to call it the ATC. The age to come. So, I mean, generally speaking, if we were going to list this out and describe certain types of people that have done those five things, what kinds of people are we talking about here? I mean, it would basically have to say that, right? Okay, so let me say it one other way. We said Jesus was faithful over God's house as a son, but what's he doing in that house? I'm going to say he's ministering. That's the whole point. Right? He's the high priest. He's doing a work in the people, one that Moses failed at. Right, he was faithful in delivering the message. He was faithful in getting them into the wilderness, but he was not able to get them to the promised land. We're saying Jesus is ministering in such a way. I'm just going to have this, like, bubble. I don't know. A cloud of glory. You pass into the ministry of Jesus... We're saying, unlike Moses, you pass into Moses' ministry, eh, no guarantees. What are we saying about if you pass into Jesus' ministry? His his blood works. That's the whole point. He's a good high priest. And the next several chapters are going to say, he's really good at the ministering part. And then the thing he's applying to you is his blood. And that blood is really good at its part. So both sides of the coin are really good at what they do. So if you pass through that, you're going to have good things coming out on the other side. Check. Very positive. In other words, people who have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, enjoyed the word of God, they have embraced and touched and used to some degree the powers of the age to come. We're talking about people in the little cloud, right? These are people who are experiencing the ministering power of Jesus Christ. So it's impossible for them to do something. We can call it the born again. We can totally call this the born again. All right, so I'm going to have to put this together, and I just want you to see it clearly. So I'm going to work through it slowly. But it's impossible for them. Now jump down to verse 6. So they're all of those things. They're, They're here. It's impossible for these people who have entered here and then they fell. It's impossible for A and then B for C to happen. This is A. If you have A and you have... Whoops, that's not B. And this is B... Then the next step, C, what would we call that? You fall away, but you get back in. Restoration, let's call it repent. Okay? It is impossible for those people to have experienced all that, and then, verse 6, to have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them to repentance. 
Follow what I'm saying. Just, just see the dots clearly. If you're this, and then you're this, you cannot repent. That's what he just said. I'm not stretching. I'm not. I'm just, just literally verbatim what the passage is saying. If you're a believer and you fall away, you cannot come back. Period. One-way street. That's shocking to anyone. Right. Wait for the other shooter. Yeah. <laughs> for the other shooter. Yeah, wait, wait, okay. You have to define B. Uh, we're not. So, we're not. So, all, yeah. all we're saying yeah. is we're just trying. We're going to interpret yeah. in a moment. Uh, right. Right now we're just describing what he said. Right. So what he said is that if you're a believer, so what we've really said A is, meaning you're experiencing. The ministry of Jesus, if that's what you are, and then you fall away, it is impossible, not unlikely, it is impossible for that person to repent. Why would that be impossible? Because you can't re-crucify Christ. Okay. That's literally what he says next. For let's see, where are we at? Second half of verse six. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So Jesus would have to die on the cross a second time in order for this person to be saved. So I want, if you can follow the logic of why, then we can get to the application. So why would it be impossible for someone to fall out for them to come back in? Because Jesus is already at the right hand of God in heaven. He would have to come back in the form of a man again to be re-crucified. All things are possible except this. Because Jesus is more powerful than man. And, and man would have to choose So let me restate the scenario using the story of Lazarus. Okay? So Lazarus is dead in the tomb for four days. He's dead dead. Stink dead. Alright? Jesus comes up and says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, if Lazarus came out of the grave and was alive for just a moment... And then fell down dead again. What would we say about the scenario? He wasn't a believer. Would we say Lazarus did something wrong? No, he's 
We would imply, or we would assume, that Jesus didn't have enough power to raise him from the dead. Or not permanently, just wake him up. He couldn't give him true life. But that's not what happened, though. What happened? He, 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 he came back to life life. Real life life. Not kind of wake up life. Like He literally came back to life. Follow the logic. <clears throat> what causes these things to happen? Can any of that happen apart from Jesus doing something? No. 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 We're not even getting into Calvinism and predestination. We don't have to go there for this conversation. We're just talking about here. No one gets saved apart from Jesus doing something directly. I mean, you could repent. And if Jesus didn't do his side, I don't care if you do, you repent, then Jesus works, or Jesus works and causes your repentance. Whichever side, whichever framework you use to look at that, both have to happen. Jesus has to do his work, or you cannot be saved. Here's what we're saying. The ministering work of Jesus is the only thing that can enlighten you, that can make you taste the heavenly gift, that can give you the Holy Spirit, that can change your heart to make you enjoy the Word, and can equip you to use the powers of the age to come. And if His ministering isn't good enough to keep you there, nothing is. So if the cure doesn't work on you, what hope do you have? You have zero hope. You follow the logic? If the only thing that can save you couldn't save you, you have no hope. Are we talking about sin or are we talking about actually recanting? We're talking recanting here. This is not... did something bad yesterday. David did that. Right. I mean, what all did David do in his scenario? Oh, too much. <laughs> he got the murder, <laughs> right? But he didn't fall away. What David did would not, biblically speaking, be considered apostasy. Apostasy would have been David going, you know what? God was wrong. Let's uh, not do this Yahweh thing. Let's tear down the temple. Let's do bell worship instead. Right. That's apostasy. That is, and I know people just grew up in church with this evangelistic presentation description of sin and we're told all sin is the same. It is not. Idolatry is a far worse sin than basically everything else. Is it? it? Absolutely. So David did not commit the great sin of idolatry. And so he did not apostatize. What we're saying, hypothetically... Is any true believer who apostatize, that means the blood of Jesus was not good enough to save you. Therefore, it can't save you. The only way you can be saved is for Jesus to come back with a do-over and try harder and produce better blood, and hopefully that better blood can do something to you. But what is the author of Hebrews saying that's an option? That Jesus might actually reincarnate, sacrifice again, so that he can do a better job of his ministry and save you. No, not at all. He's being very facetious with that statement. That's not happening. Why does it not have to happen? His blood was perfect the first go-round. 
His ministry is perfect the first go-round. This is the difference between him and Moses. Now, we're not talking about a believer who's up here and just commits a sin. Because that's everybody in the room. You are going to sin. But a true believer, guys, does not, cannot, will not apostatize. Because this works. And if you did apostatize, that would mean Jesus doesn't work. And if Jesus doesn't work, you have no hope. So is that saying that if you got to B, you weren't really an A to begin with? So he's saying if you got to B, you couldn't do C, because C's not possible, couldn't happen. But what he means, and I would argue very vehemently here, the whole point of this argument is that B's not possible. If you were A. If you're yeah, if you're if, if you're really actually A, you can't B's be. Not you can't be. Because that would mean Jesus' blood wasn't good enough. Alright? But let, he's gonna give an illustration. So let's follow the illustration. So verse um where are we at? Seven. Alright, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. So there's rain pouring down. That's A. It's, that's the ministry. The rain pours down. What comes out? Fruit. That produces fruit. But if the rain pours on the, the ground, it doesn't produce fruit. It bears thorns and thistles. Then it is worthless near being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So what does the... you got two options. You have ground that's producing fruit and ground that never produced fruit. You see the difference? We didn't have ground that produced fruit for a season and then grew thorns. You've got ground that produced fruit and you've got ground that produced thorns. Which one's the believer in this scenario? One that bears fruit. Because Jesus works. And the one that's not bearing fruit was never in the bubble. Because if it's in the bubble, it produces fruit. Guaranteed. This is what Jesus does. All right, so let's fill in some blanks. Was he thinking about that parable? Yeah, well, it's a similar concept to that parable because the point of that parable in Matthew's gospel is to say we can preach the same gospel and not everybody responds the same way. But if you actually receive the blood of Christ, it will produce fruit. That's the point he's making. So... Let's see where, let's fill in the blanks and we'll keep going. So repentance, this is key, is more about what Jesus does for you than what you do for Jesus. Um, Now I'm not saying you don't have a role in repentance. You do technically the action. But repentance can only happen if God does an action. Think about it. How does the Bible describe your state with regard to sin? Dead. Bondage. What do we need him to do? Raise us from the dead. Set us free. Right? 
Is that lingo that's about what you do, or is that lingo about yeah. what he does? That's what he does. You can't even repent okay. apart from the intervention of God. So boom, there you go. Repentance is more about what Jesus does for you than what you do for Jesus. Next, if Christ's work of redemption can't save you, you cannot be saved. So if Jesus is not enough, nothing is. He is the best bet you have. He's the only bet you have. Not even a bet. He's the only thing you got. He's the only mediator. He's the only thing that can save. And if that doesn't work for you, you are hopeless. And then third, true repentance can only happen once. True repentance can only happen once. All right, but hear this. So so I'm coming at this from a very solid position of I believe in eternal security. I believe that Jesus begins the work. He, I mean, he finishes the work he begins in us. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Nothing can snatch you from the Father's hand. Our salvation is eternal. There's tons of scriptures I could go to to argue this point, that nobody drops out from even from election to glorification. It's the same folks who make it through all stages of the process. Jesus said that he wouldn't lose anyone the Father gave to him, and he wouldn't lie or be wrong. I could make this argument from a million angles. But let's just, for the sake of argument... Come at this from the other direction, and you could lose your salvation. If you can do this, if this is a legitimate thing that can happen, what happens if this happens to you? It's over. You can't get resaved. So if salvation can be lost, it's permanent, according to this passage. I don't think he's saying that. I think he's showing us the stupidity of if the blood of Jesus didn't work, then what would? So he's making a case for guaranteed results. Yes, that's exactly what he's doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if we come at it from the other angle, okay, you know, wow. There's no rededicate your life here. There's a, oh, you wandered. Oh, well, no hope for you. Does that sound like the message of the scriptures? That's not what we read. What's the, I mean, the, the prodigal son story that's, would go very differently, exactly wouldn't it? Yeah. Prodigal son would be like, oh, sorry, bud. Yeah. You can't come back. <laughs> but that's not how it works. We, we know that's not how it works. We serve a God who's loving and steadfast and merciful and kind, forgiving trespasses left and right. We know that's not what happens. The reason we can trust that is because the ministering power of Jesus is effective every time. It does its work. He will finish the work he started. So because of that, look at the next paragraph. So though we speak in this way, so he recognizes, hey, what I just said was harsh. Though we speak in this way, uh, we feel sure of better things, and as with regard to you, Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Now, what did he just say about the people he's writing to you? Writing to you. He's like, I, I know you have fruit. I've seen it. God's not going to overlook that. 
We know there's fruit here. And if there's fruit here, I know you're doing this, which means I know you're not doing that, which means I know I don't have to worry about this. He follows argument. That, that's what he said. God's not going to overlook that. Verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. What's his end goal? Is he trying to scare you here? And I watch out. You might be about to get to a point where you can't repent. No, I want you to have full assurance of hope. Well, what's that based on? Is that based on the quality of how well you're doing something here? No. It's based on the quality of how well he's doing his part. I want you to have full assurance until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. How are we doing on time? I got five minutes. I can, I can totally get this. Yeah. All right, here we go. Uh, let me fill in some blanks. Where did we leave off? Um, Six, the last one. All right, so God pays attention to all of our fruit, no matter how small. That's just really encouraging. The author of Hebrews is saying, I've seen that fruit you have. God sees it too. And a lot of times we focus more on how much sin is still left in our lives. Because there's a lot. The better you get at looking for sin in your life, the more depressed you're going to be yeah. about how much there is. But God's looking at how much fruit there is. Look at that. There's like 0.2 degrees there. I mean, that's great. It's like when a kid takes his first steps. You know, it's like we get excited. But what did he really do? He stumbled for three steps before he fell. But we didn't go, oh, stupid kid. No. No, no we're like, his first step! You know, he gets excited. All right, that... That's just exciting. So God assures. Oh, we hadn't done that. Let's keep going. Verse 11. Or, um, no, 13. All right. For when God made a promise to Abraham. So he told us we need to imitate people who inherit promises. So his example here is Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now you remember the scenario. What did Abraham not have? that made this blessing particularly strange. He's got no children, and he's past childbearing age. And God says, I'm going to give you land, a nation, a people, specifically a baby. You're going to have a child with Sarah. Now, did he believe? Yes, he did. Okay? He he, he did it poorly, but he believed. Okay? In fact, the better you read that story, the more you go... That's what Jesus meant when he said mustard seed. Mustard seed. Okay, because it's, it's <laughs> pathetic. It's, but it's there. It's just ultra tiny. But he believed. God made this promise. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited. You see, Abraham still got credit for all of that. That was called patiently waiting. Yeah. You read his story, you go, guys, there's hope for us. You're like, I have no patience at all. Hey, maybe from God's perspective, he's like, hey, he patiently endured that whole scenario. Thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So he got it. And what was the promise specifically in that scenario that he obtained? What did he get? He got Isaac. Yes, he got offspring. He got Isaac. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise... The unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things. Now let's be clear. 
the two unchangeable things here. And if you're just reading through real quick, you'll miss what the two things were. And the author of Hebrews does not slow down enough to like list them in bullet points. So, all right. The first thing was God made a promise. And the second thing, to validate the promise, God made an oath. Those are the two things. So we have two things. So that by two unchangeable things, parentheses, in which it is impossible for God to lie. For God to lie. Mm-hmm. Now, that's saying it's unlikely for God to lie or probably won't happen. Now, what kind of impossible do we mean here? He absolutely happen. will not, cannot, and we're not saying God does not lie. That's a different doctrine. We're saying God cannot lie. Now, I always love to ask this question, like, is there anything God can't do? And if you're not thinking about it hard, it's like, well, no, God can do anything. Actually, no. There's a lot of things God can't do. One of them in particular is he can't lie. He cannot lie. It's not possible. So when you cannot lie, what does that make your promises do? They have to. You cannot. It's, he's not capable of not fulfilling a promise. It's literally not possible for that to happen. And so he makes an oath, backing up the promise. Can he break his oath? No. No. So we have two unchangeable things because it's impossible for God to lie. We, who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So is this designed to discourage or to encourage? This is all designed to encourage. But it's only encouraging if we see it from the right perspective. And if we see it from the angle of, watch out, you might lose your salvation if you step wrong. That's not encouraging. But if we look at it from the angle of, the work of Jesus is so good. If it can't save you, nothing can. Because it works every time. And if you're actually being saved by it, it will do its work. Is that encouraging? Absolutely, it's encouraging. It's the whole point of this argument. So we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Y'all know that reference, right? We're going into the Holy of Holies. We have that kind of hope where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Close parentheses. Now see what happened there. But we want to talk about Melchizedek. We want to talk about how good Jesus is at being high priest. We want to talk about how good his blood is. But we can't do that unless you believe that he can save to the uttermost. Is that the Jesus you believe in? That's what he's getting at with these. Uh, we, we can't talk about how awesome Jesus is if you're getting hung up on these basic things like whether or not Jesus actually did a good enough sacrifice to save you. Did he? Yes, that's why you got saved. That's why you believed in him. It's because he can. All right, let's fill in some blanks. So God, we did that. God assures us of salvation by two things, his promise of future reward slash resurrection. Now, he didn't explicitly say resurrection in that last paragraph. It will become abundantly clear by chapter 11. That is what he is talking about. He is talking about the resurrection. So he's promised to give us the resurrection and then his oath to keep his word. Then bullet three, we need to imitate people who inherit promises. So Abraham was the example. Abraham was promised a child. 
He obeyed God based on that promise. And then what did God do? He fulfilled his promise. Same scenario applied to us. So our version, God promises to redeem us at the day of the Lord. That's the resurrection. He's taking us to a greater Sabbath rest, the promised land, the eternal salvation, the eternal redemption. It is coming. God has promised to do it. Therefore, we obey Jesus in life because of our faith in that promise. We can walk forward today because we trust him with what's coming. That's the whole basis of faith. The unseen part of faith is not what's coming. It's the daily stuff now. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I know what happens at the end. That's absolutely crystal clear. So I have faith in that daily. And then that will end with God will actually redeem us on the last day. God will redeem us on the last day. We made it. Three minutes over. That's not bad, considering how many blanks there were. Amen. <laughs> exactly. All right, any questions? Yes. All right. Go for it. I'm almost scared to ask this. Okay. Do you believe that salvation is a process or a moment? Yes. Okay, so... Okay. Yeah, which one? <laughs> okay, so salvation happens or... Be- it's better to say salvation begins, but it's progressive perpetually from that moment. We get progressively sanctified. We don't get any more raised from the dead spiritually, though. That happened immediately. We progressively get in sync with it. Like I said Sunday, we wear the righteousness of Christ, and we get counted as wearing righteousness because we're wearing it. But the more we wear it, the more it works on us. So is salvation progressive? Yes, but it did happen instantaneously. Does that make sense? It's, it's both and. Okay. So it begins in a moment. It starts it, it at starts a specific a moment. moment, and it counts from that moment forward. So if it starts and then you died, you're saved. You rewarded it, and then you live to fulfill more of it. Yeah, we could say that. Yeah. Or you earn the, the, the we, we We line up with it more as we live. What's, what's the scripture where it talks about our being saved? Um, I think the best one to say that's in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Yeah. So the apostasy we're talking about here relates back to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as an Okay, so they're related, but they're not the same. So I would say blasphemy of the Holy Spirit technically is you're, you're about to do A. You clearly see, hey, this is A. And I don't like this Jesus. I don't like him. It's like to see Jesus face to face, clearly with absolute understanding, and say no. I looked that up while ago while you was talking about it because you know I'm I'm worried about my my family, my sisters and them, and I think the best word that I seen in there was renunciation of it. Is what made me. It's, you can't accidentally commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. No, you do it on purpose. Yeah. And and the, the bigger question, like, it happened while Jesus was physically present. It's, at what point can we say someone was as clear in their understanding of Jesus as those Pharisees were? Because they got to see him in the flesh. Yeah, you know, so it, can can you I'm even wondering. commit that sin now? Maybe you can, maybe you can't. I don't know. 
I don't know. Again, but, I think that's where I get worried about my, my sisters. My, yeah. my, I'd have a hard time. Family. As long as they're breathing, I don't know that I could affirm that they had done it. I don't either, but I just... Stop. I feel like that's life. That's yes. Life. All right. Well, I'm going to close this in prayer, and if anybody's got more questions, we'll go anyway, but we will officially pray and dismiss. Father, we thank you for tonight. We pray that you bless the reading of your word, the study that we have walked through, God. We pray that we would taste and see the goodness of the gospel of Christ, that we would walk with full assurance in his ministry, um, with him as our high priest, with him as our sacrifice for sin, knowing that he is our advocate before you, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, that he is our propitiation, that when we sin, we have him standing before your presence, um, ministering on our behalf. God, we know that because of that, he saves us to the uttermost. God, I pray that you would help us to believe this, help us to trust this, help us to feel this, so that the author of Hebrews' statement about steadfast assurance would be true in us, that we would have this belief in the gospel as an anchor for the soul, steadfast, so that we could walk patiently, that we could walk faithfully with full assurance and confidence, knowing that salvation is coming, that redemption is at hand, and that you have a plan for us that is good for us and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.